0: We're jumping in tonight to the story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. There's a lot in this chapter, and we won't be able to unpack all of it, because it's a very significant chapter in the life of David. David has risen from being an insignificant youngest son out tending the sheep to being king of the united Israel. He's been amazingly faithful. He's remained scrupulously pure in his flights from Saul, who constantly sought to kill him. But yet he leaned on Yahweh's protection, and Yahweh does. Yahweh protects him through his fight with Goliath, through Saul's pursuits, and through the civil war with Saul's son ish Now God has fulfilled his promise that David would be king. David sits as king, and God has subdued his enemies around him. Perhaps more significantly in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with David. God promised to build David's line and that his line, his kingdom, and his throne shall be established forever. God promises to be a father to David's sons so that when they sin, instead of cutting them off, as he did with Saul, that he will discipline them. After this, David continues victorious over his enemies, and chapter 10, just prior to our text, is really the prologue of our story. In 2 Samuel 10, David's kindness to the Ammonites, the neighbors on the east, is rebuffed causing the Ammonites and Syrians to make war against Israel. Yet God is with David and Israel, and they are victorious and subjugate the Syrians to the north. 2 Samuel 11, our chapter, picks up the following year when the war continues, and Israel seeks to fully subjugate the Ammonites to the east in a new campaign season. This is where the text picks up in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year... The time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? "'Uriah said to David, "'The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, "'and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord "'are camping in the open field. "'Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink "'and to lie with my wife? "'As you live and as your soul lives, "'I will not do this thing.' "'Then David said to Uriah, "'Remain here today also, "'and tomorrow I will send you back.' "'So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, "'and David invited him, "'and he ate in his presence and drank.' So that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord. But he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city? To fight. Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, this is your word. We pray that it would be a light to our feet and a lamp to our eyes and that we might see you in the midst of this darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an old story from Holland that is probably familiar to you. Now, as you probably know, Holland is a land that has reclaimed much from the sea. So there's lots of dikes, and on the one side are peaceful farms, and on the other, the raging ocean. One day, a young boy was making his home way home in the evening. He was strolling beside the dike. Then he heard a low bubbling noise, and as he walked a little farther, he saw a trickle of water. And he noticed that there was a hole in the dike, and a small stream coming from it. What should he do? He thought, my mom will be wanting me home. I need to get home for dinner. It's getting late. But he knew what he must do. He knew this was too important to leave. So he goes to the dike and he pokes his finger in the hole. The water stops. Now this little boy stays there all night through his tiredness, through the cold. He stays there and he keeps his finger in the hole because he knows that if this stream is let loose, that it will flood his whole town, and his farm, and his family. David doesn't have the wisdom of that little boy. David is here at the pinnacle of his career. God's promises to David and to Israel are being fulfilled. The people are prospering and the borders are expanding. God is protecting Israel from their enemies. David has been a righteous and a good king who has wisely healed the division from civil war. He's driven the Canaanites out of Jerusalem and God has established his covenant with David. David brought the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's mercy his presence, and his law to Jerusalem and led the people in right worship of Yahweh. If you were reading the Bible through for the very first time, you might be asking at this point, is David the promised one of Judah? Is he the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head, the star that shall come out of Jacob, and the scepter that shall rise out of Israel? Chapter 11 comes as a shock. Like a bucket of cold water in the face, David, who has been a type of Christ, falls like Adam. What is happening to David? What is he doing? This passage raises a lot of questions, but let's look at four today. Why does David sin? What does David do about his sin? When does David's sin stop? And fourth, how does David's sin affect him? First, why does David sin? The first part of the answer to this is in verse 1. David abandoned his duty. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. David is anointed the king of Israel. He's supposed to go out and lead the armies to fight the Lord's battles. But he doesn't go. His remaining in Jerusalem means that he's in the wrong place, and that opens him up to temptation. A first step to sin is to neglect the work that God has given you, and this is what David does. God has given each person a role to do, and so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Embrace the work that God has given you, find fulfillment and joy in it, because doing otherwise opens you up to sin. As David sits at home negligent of his duty, he gives way further to laziness. Look again at verse 2. It says it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof. David is reclining and taking a nap in the middle of the afternoon. This isn't a nap from someone who's been working all day and is exhausted. This isn't a young mother who's tired out from her work with her kids. But this is David simply being lazy because David, He's not doing the work that he's supposed to be doing. The walking here is literally walking back and forth. His restless strolling shows that he's tired of his idleness. This isn't, uh, there's definitely a place I would say for Sabbath rest. I want to, to make that caveat. That honors and is commanded by God. But the mid-afternoon snoozing and restless strolling on a work day that David's doing is not that. The attitude, I'm entitled to a break, I've worked hard, seems to be what led David here. Instead of allowing entitlement to slide us towards sin, we should remember Jesus' words in Luke 17. So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. David's negligence provides the opportunity for sin. But as the story continues, his sin intensifies and gets more concrete. As David idly gazes out over the city, his negligence and laziness give way to a more obvious sin, the sin of lust. Look at verse 2. It says, He saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. You could translate that, good to look at. It implies that David is not just merely passing along, but that he stops and he stares. When David first notices this woman bathing, he's faced with temptation. What if he had turned away? What if he had put his finger in the hole in the dike and stopped the sin right there? But David isn't ready for temptation because his negligence and idleness have left him vulnerable. And so he gives in to lust. He is sinfully desiring this woman who is not his wife in his heart. Again, I ask, what if he had repented then? He would have sinned in his heart, but the destruction of sin would have stopped. Christian, acknowledge the sinful desires in your heart quickly and turn from them. Do not listen to the lie that they aren't hurting anyone, because they certainly will. Jesus calls a lustful glance, adultery in the heart in Matthew chapter 5, and says it's better to pluck that eye out than to continue in sin. Sin is serious. Sin is destructive. It's not something to be toyed with. So when we realize, when you realize that you are going down a path of sin, admit it. Confess it, repent, ask the Lord for mercy right then. Take the time out necessary to pray and to make yourself right in your heart by the help of the Holy Spirit. Sin is like going in the wrong direction on the interstate. You're moving quickly in the wrong direction. Slowing down won't really help because you're going the wrong way. Keeping on going sure won't help. You must get off as soon as possible. You must take the first exit. So recognize your sin and take the exits that God gives you. Because you see, sin always develops. We see here that it turns from passive idleness to active lust in David's heart, and then it starts reaching outside of himself. The next thing he does is to send and inquire who the woman is. I'm not saying his prior sins had no impact outside himself. Having lust in his heart will already hurt the relationship with the woman David's already married to. And not being with the army in some ways hurts all the troops fighting for him. But as sin grows, it becomes more destructive to those around us. The word these messengers bring back to David is actually God's grace. David is clearly being shown that continuing down this path that he's going is sin. This woman is married. Not only is she married, but she's married to Uriah the Hittite. This is one of David's 30 mighty men, one of his close companions who for years stood by him as he ran from Saul. If David is to continue down this route... Not only will he sin against a married woman, but against a close companion of his. God is giving David an exit ramp here. He's showing him that where he's going is forbidden territory. If David had taken that option, we probably wouldn't even know this story. Brothers and sisters, turn from your sin the first chance you get. Don't keep going. See how serious a little trickle of sin is and plug the hole. Now at this part in David's story, the action is fast. Sin seizes and blossoms quickly. David chooses to blatantly break the seventh commandment by committing adultery. He sent messengers to take her, and he lays with her. That quickly, the sin is done. And with it, the passing pleasure of sin is finished. But not the pain and death of sin. All the way from our text through chapter 20 of 2 Samuel... David is dealing with the consequences and the destruction brought by this act of sin. Bathsheba is only named in verse 3 of this chapter because the focus is not on her. What is clear is that David is to blame. He abuses his power to take her and to lie with her. So why does David, the faithful psalmist of Israel, sin? Because he gave sin an opportunity. Having seen that David sinned because he gave sin an opportunity, let's turn to our second question. What does David do about his sin? At first, nothing. A couple weeks go by and David is unconcerned. But sin does not stay hidden. The end of verse 4 indicates what's about to happen. The cleansing that's mentioned here by Bathsheba is prescribed in the law for a woman to do every month. Bathsheba's ritual cleansing shows that it's the right time for her to conceive. And it shows that she was not already pregnant. It shows her purity and her faithfulness to the law. When Bathsheba does conceive, it reveals what David has done. The problem David sees, though, and works to resolve in the rest of the chapter is not his sin, but the pregnancy. And so he tries to cover it up. He doesn't consider how he's hurt Bathsheba, Uriah, or his own wives. He doesn't consider how he's broken God's law. The word This word from Bathsheba, that she is pregnant, is another bit of God's grace. It should arrest David, show him his guilt, show him that his sin can't be hidden. But instead, he treats the pregnancy as a problem. As an aside, pregnancy is never a problem. If sin led to it, that's the problem. Pregnancy creates a new special life. Ending that life, abortion, is never the solution to our sin. Thankfully, this option isn't available to David but neither does he take the option to confess. So what does David do about his sin? David tries to cover it. David's concern is his own reputation and his position. David's plan is to call Uriah home and make it appear that he is the father of the baby. So Uriah obediently comes back from the battle. David is callous enough to nonchalantly ask how everyone is and get an update on the war from the very man whose wife he had stolen and committed adultery with. David sends Uriah home and tells him to wash his feet and sends a present to him, perhaps some good food and a bottle of wine, telling him to just relax and take it easy. David just needs Uriah to spend one night at home with his wife, and then the problem of Bathsheba's pregnancy goes away. It will look like the child is Uriah's. David thinks that he can control these people and the circumstances to cover his sin. So let's ask, what should David have done? He should have confessed. He should have admitted that what he did was wrong. Under the old covenant that David was under, acknowledgement of sin was to be accompanied by sacrifice. Leviticus 1 tells us that God provided burnt offerings for one who is guilty to come, and the animal will be accepted for the guilty person to make atonement for him. Like so many fig leaves in the sun, David's attempt to cover his guilt fails. David needs the Lord's atonement to cover his sin. First John 1 John 1:9 tells us if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, I know that it takes faith to confess your sins. When you sin grievously as Davis did, David did, there's serious consequences. Children, you know that confession might lead you to get discipline. And adults, You know that that confession could lead to harming a friendship or in serious situations, perhaps even the loss of your job. Yet God tells us to confess and repent to turn away from our sin. It sure doesn't seem like it in the moment, but God is seeking our good. Our natural response is to cover our sin, but we cannot do it. Only God can. He wants to heal and restore us. Continuing to sin instead kills and destroys us and those around us as well. So what did David do about his sin? He tried to cover it. Instead of arresting his fall into sin, instead of stopping the flow of water, he keeps going, which leads to our next question. When does David's sin stop? David's plan with Uriah fails. Uriah doesn't do what David says. He doesn't go back to his house or his wife. The text is explicit. We're told four times that Uriah did not go back to his house. Uriah tells us why in verse 11. The armies of Israel are in the field. Uriah would be betraying them if he came back and enjoyed the pleasures of home. We must remember that Israel's army is not a normal army. This is the Lord's armies to fight the Lord's battles. In 1 Samuel 21, David implies at least that the men of Israel, in their own campaign, take a vow of abstinence. And so Uriah would be betraying his own word and not just his companions by doing this. What condemnation Uriah's words should be to David. The army of Israel is fighting in the field, and David stayed back to enjoy the pleasures of home, the very thing Uriah won't do. God uses righteous but unsuspecting Uriah to once again confront David with his sin. But David again doesn't listen. He again rejects God's grace to him. David has already sought to deceive Uriah, but his sin progresses further. It keeps growing. David tries again to get what he wants, this time by making Uriah drunk, so he adds that sin to his others. David has blinded him, sin has blinded him to what a good king should be. The pleasure of sin is gone, but it keeps entangling David further and dragging him down. This ploy to get Uriah drunk doesn't work either. He is faithful to his vow and does not go home. and So we begin to see just how seared David's conscience is. He writes a letter to Joab and sends Uriah's death warrant back by his own hand. David has now descended to a cold-blooded murderer. Joab, we know, is himself a scoundrel who has already murdered to keep his own position. So he's all too happy to oblige David. Joab carries out his plan and Uriah dies. I want you to see two things here. First, our sin always hurts others. Look at the fallout from David's fling. He steals Uriah's wife and then murders him. He steals Bathsheba's purity. David hurts his own wives by committing adultery in violation of his covenant with them too. Joab and various servants are coerced into sharing David's guilt by their complicity in this affair. In chapter 12, we see that the child of Bathsheba suffers too. The fallout from this will affect the entire kingdom, leading to civil war and brothers killing each other. Sin violates the second greatest commandment, what Jesus describes as loving our neighbor as ourself. David has despised all of those around him by his sin. He hasn't loved his neighbor. He's done just the opposite. I want you to see, secondly, that our sin always grows. David breaks the tenth commandment by coveting Bathsheba. Then he breaks the eighth by stealing Uriah's wife. Then he breaks the seventh by committing adultery with her. The ninth by seeking to deceive Uriah. And the sixth by murdering him. One sin leads to another. The more David sins, the harder it is to stop, even as it becomes clear that what he's doing is wrong. It's like a stream of water. It becomes clear how dangerous it is as it grows, but it also becomes harder to stop. Sin is like letting out water from a dike. If you leave the little trickle alone, it will grow and grow until it seems unstoppable and until all is swept away in its path. Now, for our final point, we need to look and see what effect sin has had on David himself. Let's turn to our last question How does David's sin affect him? Look again at verse 18. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. In a story that's gone very quickly, we kind of pause and we hear a lengthy dissertation from Joab. Why does Joab say all these things? He's afraid that David's going to be angry when he finds out the news that these men have died. But let's listen with that in mind to David's response. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. and Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. Do you see how wildly different David's response is from what Joab expected? This should chill our blood in our veins. David is not the David that we know. He's not even the one Joab expected. He's completely apathetic about the death of his troops. He's happy, even and glib that his plan is working he just wants to cover up his crime sin has destroyed this man this is not the man after god's own heart anymore david has turned himself into a heartless murderer through his sin and david's not done look at verse 26 when the wife of uriah heard that uriah her husband was dead she lamented over her husband And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. David completes his plan, finishes his cover-up, by marrying Bathsheba. While we aren't told Bathsheba's feelings, David shows no care for her. Her husband has died, but as soon as the week for formal mourning is over, he brings her to his home and marries her. He doesn't ask, he sends for her. This is what David has become through his sin. While his fall into sin happened quickly, David's hardening hasn't. It takes time for all this coming and going from the battlefield. It takes another week to wait for Bathsheba's official mourning to end. And he continues to contentedly cover up his sin for nine months until the child is born. Let me turn briefly to James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We've seen this in the life of David. He had an evil desire, and it gave birth to sin. And now that sin has led to the death of Uriah, and I think we can say to the death of David's soul. David is so hardened by his sin that he seems content like he's gotten away with it. David has destroyed who he is to cover up his sin. But the last words of verse 27 show us that this is not in fact the end. David is not get off scot-free. God is not done with David. Why? Why do we say this? Because God saw. David is not displeased by Joab's news. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Those are terrifying words. If you are walking in sin, unrepentant, know that God sees. He knows and he will bring about justice. You may go your whole life, seemingly covering up a sin, but all will be made known at the final judgment. If this is you, pray God will soften your heart and bring you to full repentance. Even as Christians, this text shows us we can displease God. On the flip side, God is pleased by our feeble and flawed attempts at obedience. But he is also most definitely displeased by our defiant sin. God is our father, so we know that he loves us. But that relationship should remind us that he can also be displeased by our sin, particularly when it hurts some of his other children. But on the other side, I want you to know, if you've been hurt by another sin, that God sees and he cares, and he will bring justice You are not forgotten. As in our story here, it may appear so, but God will bring every sin to light and justice will be done. It may not happen in this life, but all will be brought to light and justice will be done fully on the last day. As we conclude, please turn with me briefly to Psalm 32. While we don't know for sure, many scholars place Psalm 32 as being written about this time in David's life. Look first at verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. This is David speaking about his time in sin. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Despite appearances, David is being crushed by his sin. Although God doesn't show up in the narrative until the very last line, he hasn't been absent. He's provided gracious opportunities for David to recognize his sin. And his spirit has been pressing David's sin upon him. Christian, it may seem that confession is too difficult. But know that the alternative is far worse for you and for your own soul. David has shown us what the path to apostasy, deconversion, turning away from the faith looks like. Don't ever say that you are above any sin. If this could happen to David, a man whom God has shown steadfast love to, if he could be hardened so severely as to be unrecognizable, this could definitely happen to you too. Be quick to confess your sin. Don't let even a drip remain unchecked. In Psalm 32, David also tells us what happens when we confess our sins. I'll read verse 5 and then go back to verses 1 and 2. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Back to verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our attempts to cover our sin fail, but God can truly cover our sins. You see, up until this point in the story of David, it would have been easy to wonder if he is the promised Messiah who will deliver God's people. This passage shows he isn't, but those promises are still true. There is a son of David who will come after him and who is the true king God's people need. Instead of sacrificing his people for the king's sin, this true king sacrifices himself for the people's sins. God can justly cover our sins and count no iniquity against us because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf on the cross. Because the penalty has already been paid, there is atonement for our sins in the blood of Jesus. Repentance brings restoration. He has covered our sins. If you are anywhere along this road of descent into sin, repent today. It may be hard, but on the other side is the blessing of knowing that your sins are forgiven covered by christ your king amen let's pray god you are holy 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 may these words help to convict us of our sin and to make us a holy people thank you for your spirit that does not leave us in our sin but who convicts our hearts and who brings us to christ thank you for the redemption that we have in christ and the renewal and restoration that we have Thank you for your table that reminds us of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.